have your Bibles, we're in Psalm 8. Uh, we're in the beginning of the Psalms, we're skipping. I was going to do Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but I decided to jump to Psalm 8 because it's a little more interesting. My notes from last week are still here because I didn't clean them off. But I really enjoy Psalm 8, and then Psalm 16 is next week. I picked these two because I like them, and I like Psalm 1, 2, and 3 as well. But before I talk about Psalm 8, I would like to talk about my favorite movies. That's actually an interview question that I use when we interview people at Kids Kingdom. Uh, I ask them what their favorite movie is. Not because I care, but because I want to see them explain something that they enjoy. And I see if they have that. Because when I ask you what's your favorite movie, you're going to be like, oh, I like this because of this and this and this. And if they can't tell me what their favorite movie is, then that says a lot. And if they tell me what their favorite movie is and get excited, and then I ask them to tell me why they're in childcare and they change, <laughs> and I go, maybe they're not a good fit. So that's my uh, weird questioning. But my favorite movies, you guys should be able to tell me what they are because <laughs> I've mentioned them a hundred times. I love Star Wars. I loved watching the first three as a kid. Uh, a New Hope, Episode 4, 5, and 6, uh, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Love those movies as a kid. I watched them probably a hundred times. And as a child, watching these movies, I would sit there after they were done and try to like pick up stuff, move things. If you've watched the movies, after you're done, you're sitting there, you're going. And you can't do it, but you're trying. (laughs) Do I have to do something right? Is that to squeeze the right muscle? Like, how does that work? And then I remember my siblings and I using sticks as lightsabers and then making our own lightsabers. Remember how those at a PVC pipe? Those are fun. We broke them in a day. But they were fun, and I like Star Wars. I like the, uh, I like the first three, not the prequel trilogy. Those are garbage. Uh, I also enjoy comic book movies, and not comic book movies like the Christopher Reeve Superman movies from the 80s. I, I, if you like those, that's great, but I like the ones that are the more recent ones. I like the X-Men movies when those came out, and then the Spider-Man movies, and now the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, that's a, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's ridiculous how big that's gotten on characters that you wouldn't have been able to name. Like, who is Iron Man? You just said, I don't know. And what's Iron Man's real name? I don't know. Who's Ant-Man? I don't, now in these people, I'm like, oh, Ant-Man. Yeah, that's uh, Paul Rudd. People know who these peoples are. Uh, and I love the first Avengers movie, and Thor Ragnarok was probably my favorite one because it was funny and didn't take itself so seriously. But I like Star Wars, and I like X-Men. And then finally... It rivals Star Wars. The first Star Wars is probably my favorite movie, but the closest movie that comes to rivaling my favorite is The Matrix. And I remember one of my siblings, I was talking to Joey one time, and I was like, dude, The Matrix is such a good movie. I like this. And he goes, what? I said, The Matrix. You've seen The Matrix, right? He goes, no. I'm like, right. That came out like before you were born. <laughs> oh, kids these days. But it's only the first Matrix. Not the terrible sequels. If you ever watch The Matrix and think, maybe they made two more of these, they did not make two more of those. They took it, and then they murdered it, and then they tried to bring it back to life, and it didn't work. But there's the first one. It's full of Christian subtext as you watch it. I actually, as a youth pastor, remember, uh, this was probably six, seven years ago, I made the youth in my church watch it because they're like, we've never seen The Matrix. And I went, well, I have to fix this. So I made them watch The Matrix on a youth event one night and then write a paper about Christian parallels in it actually trying to stretch their faith and to see God speaking to them through not just the Bible, but through the movies they watch. And as I think about my favorite movies, I realize they all have a common thread. They all deal with people who are somehow more than human. The Jedi of Star Wars, the mutants and superheroes of Marvel, and to a lesser extent, DC. 
Neo from The Matrix. They, all, they appeal to me because I get this feeling in my gut that there's more out there for us. And I don't just mean God and the supernatural. I mean, like, as people, somehow we're settling for less than what we should be. The human race has more potential than we realize. So I'm drawn to movies where people fly and jump over buildings and have claws pop out of their fists. That kind of stuff speaks to me on some, I don't know, I'd say almost on a supernatural level. And I wondered about that for a long time. I said, God, is it bad that I have this desire in my heart that human beings should somehow be more than what we are, more than what we're settling for? And then I finally got some closure on the matter as I read the Bible because I realized there was some truth in my desire for more. And we'll address that here in Psalm chapter 8. So if you look at Psalm 8, it starts and ends with the same phrase. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 9, it bookends it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's verse 1, first phrase. Verse 9 is just the same phrase repeated. Uh, In our Modern world, if you have a poet who just repeats himself over and over again, he's pretty lame. Uh, back when they were first like inventing poetry, it was novel. <laughs> so when he repeats himself, they weren't just like, oh, he said the same thing again. They're like, whoa, he said the same thing again. That's awesome. So this is, this is the introduction of uh, poetry like this. And actually, that's a Hebraism where they repeat the same phrase at the beginning and at the end to bookend it. So this is how the Jewish people used to think. And there are two things to note here in this intro and conclusion. And first, if you notice, if you've been paying attention, you should say, wait a second. They say Lord two different ways. They have it written two different ways. Lord in all caps, and then Lord with just the L capitalized. What does that mean? Yahweh. There we go. Which one is Yahweh, Connor? The capitalized one. All the caps. So in fact, he's not just saying, oh Lord, our Lord. He's not repeating the word Lord. He's saying, oh Yahweh, our Lord. And that's God's name as revealed to Moses. We see that in the Old Testament. So this is that special covenantal relationship God has to his people. This name was never revealed to Abraham. This name was never revealed to Isaac or Jacob or his kids. It was only revealed to Moses. They just knew him as God. They just called him God. That's what, like, what we do. We just call God, God. We don't ever call him Yahweh. But Abraham didn't know that name. It was only revealed to Moses. And Moses, if you remember, God said to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My name is Yahweh. He who is, is what it basically means. And so he's calling upon Yahweh, our Lord. He's saying, Yahweh, who took the Israelites out of Egypt. This is the God that we're talking about. This isn't just anyone who believes in God. This isn't saying, oh God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is Yahweh, the Lord of the Israelites. They are calling upon the one true God, the one who made everything. He is the one who does everything in verses 2 to 8, and he is the only one who does everything in verses 2 to 8 in this psalm. Because in our world, we live in a very cosmopolitan world, in a world that's trying to be more like a melting pot. And sometimes like a salad bowl, but anyway, it's all kind of jumbled together. And it's popular for people to say, oh, well, all paths lead to God. I've heard Christians say that. Well, all paths lead to God. All Christians and Jews and Muslims and Mormons and Hindus, they all worship the same God, but in different ways. It's like a bicycle. Thank you, Sharon, for shaking your head, but bear with me. It's like a bicycle wheel. All the spokes just point into the middle. So there's the Hindu spoke, and there's the Christian spoke, and there's the Jew spoke, and there's the whatever. And they're saying they all lead to God. But that's just not true. 
If you look at the different religions, if you look at the different ways these spiritual beings are worshipped, there is very much a difference between what a Christian believes and what a Muslim believes and what a Hindu believes. And they cannot be reconciled. And I, this is a different sermon, but I believe all Muslims and Mormons and Hindus, they all worship spiritual beings. But they aren't God with a capital G. And that's not good. I think there really was in, and I'll put it in quotes here, an angel named Murani. I believe that Allah is a spiritual being. I believe that there is a Krishna and a Vishnu and a, all those other, but they're not God. And if they're not working for God, then that's a big problem. That means on the other side. That's a different sermon. We're not going to get into that today. What David is talking about here is he's saying this God, Yahweh, that we know as Father, Son, and Spirit, he is the one who has such a majestic name in all the earth. And the second thing I want to talk about is the word majestic, which needs some explanation. Because when we say majestic, I did a Google image search, which is always super helpful for sermons, to do a Google image search for a word in order to get the understanding. I looked up the word majestic. If you Google image search for majestic, guess what you find? <sighs> no. <laughs> Not liquor store. What did you say? Theater. Theater. Okay. You guys are getting real creative. You find pictures of animals. There's like an eagle in like a bunch of them. It's flying through the air. There's a lion just kind of looking out over the pride lands. There's different animals. When they say, when we say majestic, when we get that idea, that's, it's like a whale breaching the surface and about the land. We take majestic as meaning like pretty or awe-inspiring not the liquor store or the theaters. But here, David actually uses the Hebrew word adir. That's A-D-D-I-R. And the idea of this word is that it is noble or honorable and powerful. And the idea here is a king or a ruler and someone who is powerful and deserves to be respected. So God or Yahweh is majestic in all the earth. He is the ruler of heavens and earth. David is saying, God, you're not just in charge, but we, d- we deserve, you deserve reverence. You deserve respect. You are powerful. You are mighty. You aren't like cool looking deer jumping over a, a fence. You are amazingly powerful. You are noble beyond recognition. You are king of kings and lord of lords. And as a result of him being the king in charge of everything, He has the right to do everything he does in verses 2 to 8. So David's opening and his closing, it praises God for two things. First of all, he's the majestic ruler over all creation. And that's enough to praise God. God made everything. He's in charge of everything. He is the person who crafted everything. And that's just enough to praise God. But he's also praising the special relationship he has with God and calling him Yahweh. Because he's saying, God, you have revealed yourself to us as the redeemer of your people, the one who delivers them from oppression, the one who gave us the law so that we can follow you the right way. The Israelites know him as Yahweh, the one who is. And all that is packed into this opening when he says, 
O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic, how noble, how mighty and powerful is your name in all the earth. Everybody everywhere should worship you and you alone because you made everything and you're in charge. And it's this guy who was doing everything in verses 2 to 8. And in verse 2, we're going to keep moving. David makes a statement that stands out in the Old Testament as being unique. And it's so unique that Jesus actually quotes it in the New Testament. And you don't hear much about kids in the Old Testament. Uh, Most of the treatment on kids is so-and-so begat so-and-so. The fact that they were at one point in time a kid is just kind of glossed over. Cain and Abel, we don't know how old they were when Cain killed Abel. They weren't like five and six years old. They were, you know, much older than that. But they don't talk much about the childhood of anybody in the Old Testament. Uh, Samuel comes to mind, but that's, that's like it. Honor thy father and thy mother is about as specific as it gets towards instructing children. God really expects parents to lead their kids for him. Which again is a different sermon. But in verse 2, David talks about children and babies. And here in the ESV it says, uh, babies and infants, the word actually is children and infants. The first word, uh, babies, could actually be translated children. Jeremiah called himself a child in Jeremiah 1. So this term is really anybody from, who has been weaned up until adulthood. So it, it's about the ages between, I want to say, 1 to 2 and about 13 or 14. So these are children. Tweens. I hate that word, but it's a good term because it accurately describes the kids between like 9 and 12 who are in their own weird adolescent phase. Call them tweens. This is, this is talking about that. But the second word, infants, is actually the word to suckle. I hope I don't have to explain that. But it's basically nursing babies. It's here he, here he is including everyone, probably 13 and 14 on down. But it is from these small children that God ordains praise from himself. Now, if you'll notice, you'll say, wait a second. It says here, you have established strength because of your foes. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. That doesn't say praise. Um, but it sounds, the strength uh, sounds weird, and we go, well, what does that mean? It's strength is actually a figure of speech. Uh, and a figure of speech, which means praise instead of strength. How do we know this? Look at the best Bible interpreter ever. Matthew 21, 16. Jesus tells us that that's what the figure of speech means. Matthew 21, 16. And uh, do you hear what these are saying? The religious leaders come up to Jesus when he's in the temple. And Jesus says, yes, do you, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? So what happened here in Matthew 21, Jesus, this is after the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming into the temple. Jesus is coming into, sorry, Jerusalem. Back up one. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And what do the people say when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem? Hosanna. The parents, the adults, are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Yay, he's coming into the temple. He's coming into the city. He's going to deliver us from the Romans. We are expecting Jesus to set up a counter Government movement that he's going to overthrow the Romans and take out everything. They're thinking, save us, Jesus, from the Romans. He doesn't come do that. He saves them in a different way. That's 21. Actually, if you look in 14, he's healing in the temple. And the kids see Jesus healing. And so what the kids do is they mimic their parents. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The parents are shouting, Hosanna. Jesus is healing in the temple. And the kids repeat what they heard their parents say just a little bit beforehand. 
Their parent, the kids repeat what the parents said. That's what kids do. No matter how old they are, when we pray at mealtime, we, we, we pray and we thank God for our food. So we all fold our hands. Ben, who is one and a half years old, has no idea what we're doing. I can't express, express to him or explain to him what God is. Hey, God is invisible and he's everywhere, but he's in charge of everything. And Ben doesn't understand that. He just sees everybody do this. So when we pray, he starts clapping. And he claps through prayer time. But he's praising Jesus in his own way. I thought of that this week. I'm like, man, my kids are doing what the Bible says. Earlier this week, and I was, I, the, the Ben story was my original story. God gave me a better one. This week, I was ready, getting ready to take Natalie to preschool. We take Seth early in the morning, come back, and then I take Natalie. Because, of course, they don't start at the same time. But she's in her room getting ready. And I'm, I'm all ready, and I'm ready to take her. And she's doing her thing, taking forever to do something that should take five minutes. But she's in her room, and she's singing. And she usually sings Let It Go from Frozen, or like the theme song from My Little Pony. But as I listen to her, as I'm, I'm like waiting for her, I'm like, oh, Natalie, you're taking forever. As I listen, she's singing, Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is my best friend. Over and over and over and over again. And I go to Sarah, I go, you hear this? She's making up worship songs. <laughs> I didn't teach her this song. She didn't learn it in school. She came up with that on her own because she's a kid and she's doing what Psalm 8 verse 2 says. Out of the mouths of small children, of a four-year-old. Over and over again, my kids amaze me with their knowledge of what God does for them. Seth, one time at night, he, I said, Seth, if you wake up in the middle of the night, what should you do? He's like, go back to sleep. I'm like, yes, don't cry. <laughs> Just go back to sleep. It's so easy. And he's like, okay. And I said, why should you go back to sleep? He goes, because Jesus is here with me. And I went, who told you that? He goes, you did. Good, thank you for listening. <laughs> but I've, as I experienced, because I've talked about this psalm before talked about this when I was a teenager, when I was 20, before I had kids. But now as I'm an adult, I see this in my own kids, and I'm like, man, this is cool. I'm seeing the Bible in action. But as I've read Christian psychologists, I've uncovered something fascinating, is that children, little kids, are born with their spiritual windows wide open. They pick up on stuff that we block out as grown-ups. Children are actually frequently more in tune with the supernatural than almost all adults. When I was a six-year-old, I think God called me to the ministry for the first time as a six-year-old. A six-year-old, that's Seth's age. I didn't have anybody tell me what it was like when God called you into the ministry. I didn't have anybody tell me what it's like when the Holy Spirit comes and calls you and it's like, hey, you need to get into ministry. Nobody explained that to me. I was just, okay, this is what God does. I was open to him speaking to me because I didn't know any different. And actually, we as adults have to teach our kids to deafen their ears. We live in a culture where we consistently teach our kids to deafen their ears to the supernatural. They ask about God, they ask about angels and spirits and the devil, and we give them half-neck answers. Say, oh, don't worry about that. 
Because my daughter, all, like, all, not, not just Natalie, Seth, Natalie, all, all the time asks me, Dad, are ghosts real? Technically, yes, but as you're thinking of them, no. And they're like, well, are zombies real? And I'm like, okay, that's a definite no. <laughs> but you don't have to sit there and you, we, j- a lot of people just lump it all together. Nope, nope, don't worry about it. There's no ghosts. Ghosts aren't real. Uh, vampires aren't real. Demon, uh, demons aren't real. Just lump it all together and say it's not real. We teach kids to shut their ears and close their eyes to the supernatural. And we model for them. Even if we tell them that we believe in God, we model an inattentive, inattentive lifestyle where God, God is marginalized. And our kids pick up on that. They see us do that and then duplicate it. But only because we first taught them that behavior. We raise basically kids who have little to no faith because we have little to no faith and they model that. But as you read the Bible, God made us from a very young age to be receptive to him. Out of the mouths of babies and children because they are innately aware of him. And the last half of this verse says it actually quiets the enemy. The devil hates it. The devil hates it when kids praise Jesus. And that's why it's so stinking hard to get people in children's ministry. That's probably why Cheyenne is sick today. (laughs) The devil does all he can to keep those kids away from Jesus. He does everything he can to keep our kids away from him. I've read a statistic somewhere that says people who don't accept Jesus by the age of 13 are more likely than not never going to become Christians. 13. I don't even remember being 13. How, what grade are you in? It's like seventh grade. By the time they're in middle school, if they haven't accepted Jesus, they more than likely will not. Satan does all he can to keep kids away from Jesus, even distracting church people, because that's one of the easiest ways. Gets us busy, all those kids. So thank you, Ashlyn and Daniel, for going back there and taking care of them today, because those kids need it. They don't have the cognitive ability to sit here and process what I'm saying. Oh, Pastor Rob, it's giving decent exegetical insight to the Bible. Mm, That's going to help my walk. I sit there and think, this is so boring. Dad's talking. (laughs) But when kids praise, when they pray, when they recite a Bible verse, God's strength is shown over the enemy because God is awesome. And the rest of the psalm can be summarized as an expression of how great a creation mankind is. This is really what I'm coming down to. Uh, The rest of this psalm says, God thinks pretty highly of us. Verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Basically, the question is, in light of how vast and how great the universe is, how important are people? Do you know how big our solar system is? You know how big the sun is? The sun is monstrous. The sun makes up 99.86% of all the material in our solar system. 99.86. And Jupiter's 0.1%, which means 0.04% is Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, all the asteroids, all the comets, Pluto, and all of its sad friends out there at the edge. The sun is huge. It converts 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. 600 million tons. That's a, that's a ton. Duh. That's a million, 600 million of them. 
It is a giant thermonuclear reactor that powers our planets. It converts hydrogen, takes two hydrogens together, mushes them together into helium. And the sun is just one star in the Milky Way galaxy. This is a picture of the Milky Way. It's a dumb name for a galaxy. Like we have the Andromeda galaxy, the Triangulum galaxy. We have all these galaxies around us with cool names, and we're stuck with Milky Way. But this is a picture in the middle of the night towards the galactic center. Each of those stars approximately equal to our own sun in size. The Milky Way galaxy contains around 300 billion stars like ours. As a point of comparison, if our solar system, meaning not just the sun, but everything out to Neptune, were the size of a quarter, the galaxy would be the size of the United States. That's pretty big. And the Milky Way galaxy is just one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. And that's just all we can observe with our eyes and with our technology. All of creation, everything out there is bigger than we can even begin to comprehend. There is so much out there. Why are we special at all? That's the question of verses 3 to 4. When I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, when I, and the more we look at it, the more we see. David didn't know there were other galaxies out there. David probably looked up at that and thought, huh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> It's a galaxy that you're looking at from the sideways viewpoint. They just discovered other galaxies exist in the last 200 years. They just thought there were blots for a long time. Like, oh yeah, that's just a nebula. No, it's another galaxy. It keeps getting bigger the more we look at it. And the sad thing is approaching this question, verses 3 to 4, approaching this question from a secular viewpoint yields horrible answers. Without God, there is no reason why, the, why humans are special. We are, at best, a happy accident. The universe's greatest mistake. Or that. And at worst, we are nothing more than space dust. But as humans, we know that can't be true. People tell us, from a secular viewpoint, look at Carl Sagan, look at, I'm going to say his name wrong, Neil deGrasse Tyson, look at, look at these men who are deep into the science of astrophysics, and they'll tell you, we're not special. But we as people desperately want to be special. We say there has to be something more than we are. We want to, we imagine that we're great. We have Avengers, we have X-Men, we have Star Wars and Star Trek and the Matrix. Woven into the core of our being is that we are special. And there is something about humanity that is unique in all the universe. But if we look at life from a secular viewpoint, devoid of religion, the answer to the question of how we are special in this life, is simple. We aren't. But thankfully and mercifully, God does not share that answer. God thinks we're pretty special. And he weaves that into every page of this book. Every page of this book tells us that God, who made everything, who made all this, thinks that we're pretty special. What makes us special? Our relationship with God. That's why we have stories of men calling down fire from heaven and men walking on water. Well, Jesus just, it was just Jesus that walked on water. No, Peter did too. Making the dead come back to life. It's through his relationship with us that he's accomplishing verses five to six. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It is only through God that these things can happen. 
On our own as people, we could never do this kind of stuff. But God, who has all the power, can and can easily do all this stuff. It is just as easy for him to forgive a sin as it is to, some, to say to someone, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus makes that point in Matthew when he heals the paralytic. They say, who is he that can forgive sins? And he's like, you think that's easy. Watch this. He's got his sins forgiven, and now he can walk. Jesus is like, I didn't even break a sweat doing that. This is easy for me. Now, ultimately, if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 explains that these verses are about Jesus. Jesus is the example of what God wants in mankind. Jesus is the example of perfect humanness. When God created people, he wanted every single one of us to look and behave just like Jesus. He wanted us to live the kind of life that Jesus lived, not just in its sinlessness, but in its powerfulness. What Jesus was, God expects us to be. And in a lot of churches, you'll hear, oh, Jesus was sinless and he was kind and he was a friend to everybody and he got along and he was just great. And they'll tell you it and it goes about that far. But that's not the whole story. God wants us to be kind and gentle like Jesus. Yes, he wants us to be firm in our convictions and he wants us to forgive people and he wants us to give our lives to God. Yes, but the fact that Jesus calmed the sea, multiplied food, cast out demons, raised the dead and healed the sick, God expects the same from us too. And Jesus even tells us that. This has been in the Bible since John wrote it in about the year 90 AD. But Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Not say the words that I say, but do the works that I do. What kind of works did he do? Look in the book of John. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus goes, Ta-da! Do you think he did that? He came out and was like, Ta-da! And he like, hopped to the edge. (laughs) Hey, guys. I wonder about these things. But Jesus says, not just will do the works that I do, greater works than these he will do. That part is, like, just the first part's great. Do the stuff Jesus did? Awesome. Sign me the, <laughs> sign me up. But greater stuff? Whoa, 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 whoa. You expect us to take an advance on this stuff, Jesus? How? Like, that just blows your mind. And Jesus says, no, greater things. As we walk closer with God and align ourselves more with him, we will see more of the things that the New Testament church saw. That's something that should be ingrained in you as you read the Bible. You read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, see Jesus do all this cool stuff, and then Jesus goes to his father and says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can continue on my ministry. And if you look, every single chapter in Acts, there is a miracle. You can't get away from the fact that Acts is filled with miracles. And a lot of people... They don't get that. I was in my class for uh, seminary in August. Last week of August, I went out to Luther Rice for my doctoral class, one of many I have to go out there for. And I heard some guy say, he's like, all right, we need to do some church instruction. We can't teach out of the Old Testament because the Old Testament was a different covenant. We can't use the Gospels to do any church instruction because that was Jesus' life. We can't use the book of Acts because that was a transition time. So let's just stick with Paul's letters. And I'm like, you... And I couldn't say the words. I was just like, how do you ignore the fact that Jesus tells us to do stuff? Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's in Matthew. 
Jesus says this kind of stuff in John. This is didactic instruction for the church found on the mouth of Jesus. So you're either going to ignore Jesus and just do what Paul says, which is just an extension of this. It's like the whole of church history should be showing us that the church should look radically different than it does. Which scares me because that sets a really high bar for me. Because if you look in the New Testament, yes, there are people who are not church leaders doing stuff, but God kind of expects church leaders to be the foreline of doing it. So instead of praying for people's ankles to get better, God expects like us to say, hey Danny, get up and start walking, your ankles are all better. Let's see if he does. <laughs> Come on! Look at Acts. Peter and John, the first miracle Peter and John do, they don't say, hey, can we pray for you? No? Okay. They just look at him and say, hey, we don't have money. How would you like to walk instead? Can I have both? (laughs) So while we are made in God's image, we are made a little lower than angels is what God says here. But even in this, we are crowned with glory and honor. We are given a position of leadership and authority over God's creation. And that fullness, the fullness of that authority is found in Jesus. He is the one who models that behavior. Jesus shows us that God has in fact put dominion over the works. Jesus was given dominion over the works of his hands. Jesus walked on water. Jesus was in charge of the water. Can you imagine that? Like, I'm in charge of water. (laughs) Okay, we're going to line up and I'm going to walk on you. Piece of cake. Jesus does awesome stuff. And he's the one who models that behavior. God wants us to move beyond the ordinary into extraordinary lives. That just blows me away. And I think, as I think about how to apply this passage, yes, I want our church to be filled with us doing awesome stuff. I want people to say, hey, you got, X, you got this disease? Go to this church, you'll get better. I got these people there that they'll pray for you or they'll tell you to get better and you'll get better. That's the kind of church that that I want us to be known for. Careful, they're a little weird, but God's power works through them. We can't explain it. (laughs) But God's power works through those people. And I want us to be that kind of church. But I don't think we can just jump into it and start doing stuff like that yet. I think we've got to set set some more practical, a little bit more practical worth of goals before we jump into that. But I want to focus here on two things. I'll just leave it here. One, you have put all things under his feet. Very end of verse 6. And in verse 5 it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now we both know, we all know that both of these ultimately apply to Jesus. He is the one crowned with glory and honor. And God has put everything under his feet. Jesus is in charge of death. Jesus is in charge of healing. Jesus is in charge of the water and walking through walls and all that awesome stuff. Jesus is the one that David wrote about. Since he is the ideal human, Jesus sets the example for us and everything that we should do. But these promises aren't just for him. He doesn't hoard them in heaven and say, I'm the only one with glory and honor. Jesus takes it and gives it to us. He lives in us. We are part of his body. We are his masterpieces, as Ephesians 2 says. So the promises are about him, but these promises are also about us as people. And with that in mind, let's look at these two promises. You have put all things under his feet. God puts all things in this world under our feet. 
But to phrase it differently, God has given us dominion over everything we encounter. There is nothing that can stand up to us in Christ. If you look at the book of Acts, nothing stands up to the church and wins. Nothing. Not sickness, not death, not weather, not demons. Nothing stands up against the church and wins. Not even the government and the religious leaders. They beat everything. And even when they kill someone, Stephen gets martyred for his faith, but the church keeps growing. James gets martyred for his faith, but the church keeps growing. The church keeps growing and it keeps growing because God is behind them 100%. God wants his people to act as his delegated authority in this world. And even as I say that, as I hear myself say those words, as I look at them written in my notes, God wants his people, wants, I have it underlined or italicized, God wants his people to act as his delegated authority. It sounds too fantastical, too good to be true. But if we believe this book, then we need to believe that there's more out there for us. God wants us to be in charge. The church has so much to grow into that we can't even comprehend it. And I'm sure of it. And I hope to see us start doing it here. Maybe one day we'll have classes on how to cast out demons, how to raise the dead, or how to still a storm. That'd be pretty awesome. That marquee out there, I put the words out there on the marquee. Thank you, Lord, for the rain. You can stop now. Maybe one day we'll have a class on how to send rain away so that it's over, if you're overflooded, Or if it's super dry, how to do an Elijah and be like, hey, God, let's make it rain some. Uh, but for our day-to-day life, before we get into that stuff, God has put all things under our feet. Things in our homes. God has put stuff in your home under your feet. Not just the floor and the carpeting, but I'm speaking metaphorically here. God has put stuff under our feet. In our work, in our neighborhood, he has given us authority. Are we using it? Our parents telling the enemy to leave their kids alone. I've stopped praying over my kids. Jesus, protect them from this stuff. And I've started saying, enemy, leave my kids alone. Seth has a little unkind student in his class, we'll say. And I've stopped saying, Jesus, protect Seth from this kid. And I've started saying, leave him alone. Lord, I set a protection over my kid. He's going to be protected. And even when that kid is still mean to Seth, Seth comes home, he's smiling. That's great. <laughs> I'm happy. Our parents telling their kids, the, our parents telling the enemy to leave their kids alone. Are you asking God to bless your work abundantly? For years, I have been praying for my dad's print shop to be super profitable. Literally, those words, right? Pray that the print shop be super profitable. And I stopped praying that, but God convicted me, and so I started praying it again. And I cannot explain how blessed my dad's print shop is. The dad, does, dad does like no advertising, right? But people will come in and be like, hey, I've got all this business I want to give you. It's God giving us authority, saying, dad's a believer. We can pray in authority and say, God, bless my dad's business, and business will come walking through the door. Can't explain it. God does it. Take him at his word. Are you speaking health and life to your body? If you look in Romans 8, God says the Holy Spirit gives lives to our body as the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If you're not dead... Now, like, that's the worst case scenario. The Holy Spirit brought Jesus' dead body back to life. So if he can bring a dead body back to life, can he help your hips feel better and your knees and your ankles, head, shoulders, knees, and toes? I mean, like, everything. Now, this isn't a health and wealth gospel. 
but the book says that we should be experiencing more than we are. And that's the problem I have with the health and wealth gospel because I'm like, God doesn't want us all to be rich and healthy. We, are, we do get sick. We do struggle through financial times. But at the same point in time, look what the book says. Now again, this isn't our power. It's God's power in us. But it seems we are living below the expectation God has for us. And the second phrase, you have crowned him with glory and honor. In a nutshell, your life is significant and has purpose. Yes, humanity in the large sense is special in God's eyes. And we are here for a reason. But within that larger humanity, you are special, you are here for a purpose, and you are here for a God-ordained reason. There's a line from Kung Fu Panda that I love. One that stands out. There are no accidents. They say it over and over and over again in the movie. But it's one of those truths that's in the Bible. God does not have accidents. God did not create accidents. We are purposeful. God does not allow accidents to happen in our lives. God brings people into our lives and says, guess what? You're going to learn how to deal with this person. Or guess what? This bad thing happened, but I'm going to teach you through it. This good thing happened. It's no accident. There are no accidents among people. You are crowned with glory and honor. As you sit there right now in that seat, feeling hungry for one of those donuts that Ray brought, you are crowned with glory and honor on your head. Kate, there's glory and honor on your head. Doug, there's glory and honor on your head. Danny and Tom and Chris and Meredith and John, even as you're looking at me with that look, there's glory and honor on your head. Burning the hair off like it is with me. I firmly believe everyone in this world has a purpose in and out of the church. God gave you a purpose for his most important vessel, the church, and God gave you a purpose outside the church. You are part of the body. God has you in his family for a reason. You are in this church for a reason. And in this church, you are here for a reason. There is no accident that you are here. And like Adam, God has something for you to do here on earth. Not just in the church. A lot of people are so, oh, I have churches, everything. Yeah, church should be important. Yes, it should be a family. It should be a community. It should be, to use a term that Chris used, kind of like a gang. (laughs) A good gang. I don't know. (laughs) A family. There we go. Use a biblical term. It's a good gang. (laughs) Yeah, we're the Christians. We're the good gangs. Get leather jackets, everybody. Um, But God gave us here for a reason in the church, but God gave you a purpose outside the church as well. You are not just here to exist in the church, you are here to exist in the larger part of God's creation. God made Adam to do what? Have a relationship with him and tend the garden. God gave you a work to do. Might be as a businessman like Chris. Chris is a dude who's in business. God's blessing him. That's his garden. It might be as a mother or as a father. It might be in childcare. It might be a member of Congress. I don't know, but God puts you on this planet for a reason. And God's glory and honor is on your head. And that gives you a reason to be here. Do you know what that is? Do you want to know what that is? <laughs> Have you asked him? And are you willing to follow the directions he gives you if you ask him? 
I firmly believe that if we say, God, why am I here? He'll tell you. He won't go, nope, I'm not going to tell you. Because you're literally saying, you who made me, what do you want me to do? What part do I play in this big story that you're telling? (laughs) He'll tell you. In Christ, as Christians, all things under your feet, and you are crowned with glory and honor. Are you living up to the standards that God has laid out for your life in the Bible? You can either believe your existence or you can believe God's word. And I believe we should take the Bible and raise our lives up to the standard that God has set out for us. It's scary and it's intimidating. But it's good. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for everyone here this morning. It is no accident that the people here this morning are present. You have ordained for every single one of us to be here, to hear what you have to say, and hopefully to speak through me so that these people can be blessed. Lord, I, I would like to bless each person here with confidence in you and confidence in your word, that they would hold their heads high because you have crowned them with glory and honor. You hold our heads up and you crown them with glory and honor. Jesus, you are so good to us. Help us to see the truth about who we are from your word. And with that, help us to accomplish your purposes in our life. You have put everything under our feet. Lord, we speak life to our bodies. We speak life to our church. We speak life to our families and our marriages. Lord, you've put everything under our feet. Help us to use the authority that you've given to us. Thank you for watching over us, for blessing us so much. You are so good to us. I bless everyone here with your peace and your power in Jesus' name. Amen.